electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, just hours ahead of that big Fed decision, we've got the top tech names you might consider buying and avoiding ahead of more interest rate pressure ahead. The crypto crash continues as Bitcoin falls nearly 30% in a month. We will discuss... And then finally, more target cuts for Apple ahead of a big union effort in Maryland. A look at why Morgan Stanley is getting a little bit more bearish this hour, Deep. And meanwhile, Carl, the Nasdaq is seeing a pretty good bounce today as investors eye that potential hike from the Fed this afternoon. There's so much volatility. So where should you put your money to work? Dom Chu joins us with a breakdown of some defensive names. Dom, I say the Nasdaq is rebounding, but still down, what, 8.5% over the last week? Well, not just that. Defensive is a relative term when it comes to Mm -hmm. stocks and especially when it comes to the technology communication services, and consumer discretionary sectors of the market. Three of the worst performers in the S&P, by the way, over the course of this last kind of year-to-date period. Now, interest rates play a huge part of that discussion, which is why we're talking about those technology-related stocks in regard, with regard to what's happening with interest rates. Because if you look at the 10-year Treasury note yield versus the Invesco QQQ trust, one of the things that you want to focus on is just kind of like that inverse relationship that we've seen. Remember, the white line is note yields. As they have gone higher, we've seen the value of the NASDAQ, specifically the QQQ, which tracks the NASDAQ 100, go lower. So interest rates hitting growth stocks, that's a huge part of the story. With regard to that last year's worth of market action, In that NASDAQ 100 trade, the stocks that have now kind of taken the biggest hits, the growth concerns, the valuation concerns, maybe no surprise are the ones that had some massive runs during the pandemic to the upside on great expectations and low interest rates. DocuSign has lost three quarters of its value during that time. Zoom video, 70 percent and 65 percent for Netflix. We know how bad it's gotten. And by the way, it's not just them. Many of these semiconductor stocks familiar to NASDAQ 100 traders and investors, have also seen some bigger declines in that same time span as well. If you take a look at the stocks, say, like Skyworks or Intel or Applied Materials, many of those names, if you look at those, are also ones that have taken it on the chin as investors have kind of taken that growth picture with interest rates into that part of their investment thesis. So those are some of the ones that have been hit the hardest. Now, the ones that have held up relatively well albeit with some volatility, have been some of the more cybersecurity and more technology services-oriented names, consulting-type names. We're talking, of course, about names like Palo Alto Networks, also Fortinet, Cognizant Solutions and Technologies. Those stocks over the past year have actually exhibited at least some positivity or relative flatness during that span. Gives you an idea of where maybe some investors are looking if interest rates continue to be part of that story. And we'd, re- be, we'd be remiss, guys, if we didn't look at the mega cap trade. Some of those mega cap stocks have taken it a lot worse than others with regard to the last year. The real standout here is Tesla, 
as volatile as it is, it's actually up 13% on the year so far. And yes, that green line does represent a lot of a roller coaster ride. But still, Alphabet and Amazon has taken it the most on the chin with regard to that big mega cap trade. So watch those. And by the way, the discussion that needs to be had right now is whether the market declines that we've seen have taken valuations to a certain point where there is limited downside. By the way, some of those semiconductors, John, are one of the ones that have some of the lowest valuations on a relative basis because of that beating. We'll see if they become buys at some point, John. Yeah, well, speaking of, you were just talking about Amazon and how it has underperformed among uh, the mega caps there. Not everybody feels bad about it. If you want to play defense, Morgan Stanley this morning warning that high inflation market volatility, and more could hit consumer spending and soon. The firm highlighting Amazon and Match Group, Chewy, Uber as names least at risk given a slowdown, while Peloton and Rent the Runway, two names down 65% or more this year, could see even more pain ahead, they say. D, I I hear that particularly on Amazon, but I I also wonder if this advice takes into account the shifting narrative around Amazon that it's got to deal with. Like Azure, its chief competitor in the cloud space is doing great and Microsoft stock is held up better than Amazon because its core business is better positioned, enterprise software versus e-commerce right now. And also, if we have a protracted downturn, if you you sort of have to believe that the consumption models, cloud names eventually will be affected, even though their revenues and profits might be insulated, I just wonder if their valuations will be. You know, things can get uh, volatile when investors have to kick rocks. They don't like that. I'm smiling, John, because we're very simpatico today. This is exactly what I was going to say. It is very popular, uh, Carl, to hear guests on the program talk about Amazon saying and treating AWS, that cloud business, as the foundation of Amazon's value after it has come down so much. But is there another shoe to drop here? This is exactly, John, what you're talking about. Um, Are we going to see that as we see more competition, perhaps a slowing there, Carl. Um, yes, they've got all the e-commerce core stuff maybe out of the way. That's now priced into the stock. But is there a potential slowdown in AWS that's being priced in? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of these names, guys, are being sandwiched between a potential slowdown in the consumer. Uh, one example, of course, is this downgrade of Sonos uh, today and a downgrade or a slowdown in enterprise, John. And people are going to be looking for names that are going to be able to navigate between uh, that rock and hard place the best. Yeah, the Sonos one is interesting, I, you know, because they're already supply constrained. They've managed to maintain margins in this environment. They got relatively small market share. I don't know. We'll see how that plays out. And now, apart from Amazon, our next guest sees the entire tech sector paying off in the long term, pointing out that companies in the sector generate twice as much free cash flow as the rest of the S&P. And as prices have fallen, the space no longer looks so overvalued. Joining us now, Credit Suisse Chief U.S. Equity Strategist, Jonathan Golub. Jonathan, um, you know, that, that sounds kind of exciting at a time when I guess if you've made good decisions and you've got cash to invest now, The question isn't so much, should you put it to work? It's uh, what to prioritize, how much to buy, and how soon. So start with what to prioritize. Well, you know, first of all, I am dying to upgrade technology. I've been overweight technology for the last decade. And at the beginning of the year, we downgraded the, uh, we ground downgraded the, the tech sector for a variety of reasons. The first thing it was that it was, you know, extremely overvalued along with other growth stocks. And right now it is no longer um, overly expensive. It's more expensive than the market, 
But remember, these are much better long-term franchises, so they should trade at some premium, and they're not trading um, at, at PEs that are at all unreasonable right now. The second issue is that in a high inflationary environment, they just don't do as well as certain other areas like you know energy or, or materials or things of, of that nature. And that's proven to be true, and that probably will continue to be true. But the, the third is that for some reason, the mega cap tech companies for the last decade have just done incredibly well relative to the rest of the market on earnings. And that story has really broken down this year. In the first quarter, their earnings were weaker by a lot compared to the rest of the market. And forecasts from Wall Street, um, you know, Wall Street analysts, whether it be Credit Suisse or elsewhere in the industry, are that the second quarter is going to see weaker tech earnings again, especially in those big tech companies that make up so much of the benchmark. So we're keeping that neutral weight and choosing to be in some of those other areas. Now, defensive shares, you know, utilities and staples and, and REITs and things like that, by and large, they are extremely expensive for really weak growth. So unless mm -hmm. you think that we're going over the recessionary cl uh, cliff, I don't think you want to be there either. But Okay, so when do you get back into tech and do you prioritize uh, the, the big stalwarts that have had their valuations pulled in or do you prioritize the smaller upstart names that are still going to have enough capital to weather this storm? I mean, Amazon's the only one of the, the big names that's, sorry, Apple's the only one of the big names that's still above $2 trillion in market cap. Amazon's barely holding on to $1 trillion. Yeah, I mean, there's some of the, mind you, they're not all exactly the same, and they're in such different markets. Obviously, you have retail exposure and Amazon, and, and, and you know, actually NVIDIA and, and Microsoft are holding up better. And then on the social media names, advertising has been, you know, under a fair bit of pressure, given some of the things going on um, in the economy. Right now, smaller cap stocks broadly across the market look much more attractive um, than, than, than these bigger names. Mm. But so when's the time? The more concerned that you are about a recession, the more that you should be in these big cap tech names. I think it may be a little bit early, but as the economy you know, moves in that direction, I think that these guys are going to get their wind. Um, and um, you know, as far as, again, the valuation story, the beginning of the year, the most expensive stocks across the market we're trading at nosebleed 1999 levels. That story is over. The you know the extension of, of these darling stocks is really they've gotten beaten up. The valuations are fair. So the downside risk, if you do want to get back into tech, is just it, the downside is much 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 more limited than that's three muches much more limited than it was um, only a couple of months ago, which does make your you know your risk of making a mistake much mm. lower. Right. But Jonathan, what about the upside? Is the upside limited as well? I mean, you said that unless you think we're going over the recessionary cliff, um, this isn't a bad place to be. But many people think we are going to be go going over that cliff. Also, there's this question of where do valuations settle? I mean, we always look at Amazon, but there's companies in the dot-com era that are still around that have never achieved or come close to those peaks that they saw then. So are there better areas of the market to look given the macro environment and rising rates? So, so, but let's let's take a look at the earnings of you know the tech sector broadly, and you can see this across virtually every subgroup, whether it's hardware, whether it's software, whether it's semis. The 
2022 earnings are expected to be weak. So it's not only a, a, a weak first quarter, second quarter as well. But if you look at the expectations for next year, they're expected to rebound and the rest of the market is expected to deteriorate. So, you know, if you look at the earnings story, not only is it a question of are these better names in a recession? The answer is clearly yes. If you think the recession that we're moving that way, I would much rather buy a tech stock than buy a consumer staples name that just doesn't have the kind of potential upside. And by and large, while it may not be the time in the cycle to be buying tech in a period you know, of higher inflation, um, these really are superior companies. The cash flow generation of these names are, are truly superior. Their franchises do have moats around them. So they are winners. The question is just a timing issue more than anything else. So given, given that, Jonathan, at this point, if you had to choose directionally, would you be leaning toward consumer tech or enterprise tech? Oh, gosh, that's that's a really I, I mean, by and large, the what we're seeing is, is that the consumer stocks are just having a harder time, whether they're in technology space or, or, or elsewhere. So I, I and I think that as labor becomes so tight, there's an incentive from an enterprise perspective to do everything that you can to substitute labor for technology. So if you if you force me to make a decision, it would definitely be enterprise. All right. Love that specific answer. Jonathan, thank you. Jonathan Gallup. Pleasure. Switching gears a bit to Netflix today, Cowan's out with a fresh take today, running with some bulls, signaling that a less costly ad-supported option could lead to significant multi-year revenue opportunity. John Blackledge is the analyst behind that call and joins us this morning. John, always great to have you back. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. So analysts have had years to sort of model this out. And now that we know it's actually going to happen after them being yeah. stubborn for so long, um, what, how, how do they monetize it? How, how does it move the needle? Yeah. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time on it. Let's start with the new member opportunity. So our May uh, 22 survey data suggests that if Netflix, if they launch a, a lower price ad tier, call it in the fourth quarter, that they could add 4 million new members in the U.S. and Canada in 2023. And that's based on um, 18% of uh, non-members uh, suggest that they were either extremely likely or somewhat likely to sign up for a new ad tier. So what does that mean? So, so they add 4 million new members, so that creates a revenue opportunity. We sized it at about $900 million. That's about 6% upside to our, our current 2023 UCAN revenue uh, forecast. And if we unpack it a little bit, uh, we get to about $17 of revenue per member per month, and um, that's broken out two ways. One is the sub fee. Uh, we're estimating they'll charge $6.99 uh, for a monthly sub fee. That's uh, around some of the other services, and it's also about 30% below the basic tier at Netflix, which is their lower, lowest price tier. And then the other part of it is the ad revenue that they generate. We're estimating about $10 a month uh, per member in ad revenue. So. Uh, net net $17 um, is, is a good outcome, whether that's for new members or for switchers, which I want to get to. But um, uh, net net, we think it's a really good kind of multi-year uh, revenue opportunity for the company. Right. So two questions, John. One is, if it's, if it's going to work so well, why didn't they do it earlier? And two, um, does it allow them to keep their pedal to the metal on production costs? Yeah. Uh, Carl, they after this re, after the work that we published today, they they should have done it probably years ago. But 
we are where we are. Um, and also the company needs some catalysts um, given kind of where it's fallen to this year. And this is a definitive catalyst along with cracking down on password sharing. But um, uh, as it relates to the work that we did, just, just going back to it, the other part that the market should understand in, in our view is the potential switcher. So we asked existing members, like, would you switch to, to an ad tier? And 41% said that they would uh, switch to an ad tier. Now, remember, they have three tiers right now, the basic tier, 999, standard tier 1599 and then the premium tier at 1999 so um when we broke it down half of the basic tier members said said they would switch to an ad tier uh and then 40 percent of the standard and premium uh uh subs would switch to an ad tier so working through all the math it gets to an arpu of about 16 dollars a month which is eight percent higher than the arpu um that netflix reported in us and canada in the first quarter and um, and so so that's that's clearly positive. Um, and the other thing that I would call out that was interesting: if you have half of your basic tier members that are going to switch to an ad tier, and they're going to be paying less, they're going to feel good about that. Um, but they're also going to be generating seventeen dollars a month for the company versus paying uh, nine ninety nine. So um, uh, they should have done it earlier. And uh, and but but I think you know taking the potential opportunity for new members mm-hmm. plus the switchers again, it's a it's a big opportunity for them. John, um, I can't help but think that maybe we're looking at the wrong problem here. I mean, yeah, it's great. They could add new members this way. They can crack down on password sharing. But isn't there sort of a bigger existential problem here? And that is in their content and losing out to the likes of HBO Max and Disney and even, you know, Apple TV Plus, $18 billion on content this year and just not that many hits to show for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, I, I hear you. And, and that's um, uh, been much discussed in, in the investment community. Um, one thing that we did include in the report, and we, we asked this, we've been asking this for years every month, is like, who has the best, who has the best content? Yeah. And uh, Netflix is number one. Uh, so when you, I understand that they need to, uh, you know, kind of develop great franchises um, like other platforms, but by and large, they they have a wide lead, at least from our Cowan uh, survey, in in terms of who has the best content. So um, we'd like consumers are fickle. Uh, we'd like to see more and better content. They're working on it, um, and and you're right. And it's compet- It's gotten more competitive in recent years. Um, but they're they're doing what they can. And and again, just falling back on our survey data, um, uh, which is census weighted. Um, uh, folks are saying that Netflix still has the best content. Okay, John, I'm not really a basketball guy, but it's, it's the NBA Finals, so I try to be uh, timely. So they've got the best content, but do they also just sort of have the most content that nobody cares about? Like, they throw up a lot of shots, and it seems like, right, long term, you want to have the highest shot percentage, right? So spend the least on the best content you can. That's what franchises get you. And, and keep possession the longest, you know, lower churn, and then you tend to win. So how do they get more efficient. Sure, they've got a lot of great content, but then they've probably also got a lot of stuff that they're spending a lot of money on that really isn't doing for them what it should. How do they close that gap? Yeah, they probably have choices to make. I I mean, I know that they've been working on animation and we really haven't seen anything there. Um, And uh, but I would also say, John, like internationally, I think they have a pretty wide lead relative to the U.S. domicile platforms, HBO Max, Disney Plus because they're developing uh, content in, in about 50 countries. Uh, and, and a lot of the competitors, um, their content that they produce has already um, been um, syndicated uh, to other platforms. So um, I would say like, this is a, a global play. 
Um, yes, they need more more franchises, uh, but also on a global basis, uh, they they have a pretty wide lead uh, in terms of content. But but I hear you. Um, we we hope it gets better. Um, but at the same time, uh, again, going back to our survey, uh, so, uh, people their subs feel like they have the best content, and um, and I think they're working on it. You know. Yeah, well, now we have uh, the real-life squid game to go on, so we're going to see how that develops, John. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Okay, John Blackledge on the Squid streaming games. Uh, meanwhile, Apple faces a key unionization vote today. What it could mean for the mega cap, that's up next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. For a gut check on hardware, we mentioned Sonos earlier, but Morgan Stanley is becoming increasingly cautious. Writing today in a new survey, more than 50% of respondents expect to spend less in the next six months, regardless of income demographic. Analysts cutting estimates across IT hardware and leaving Apple as their only overweight, predicting that Tim Cook can better guard against supply chain pressure. But still, quote, the report says we believe consensus estimates still need to come down to reflect weaker consumer spending. Apple is higher today by nearly a percent, but it is down 9% over the last week, John. Well, when you say Apple three times, Steve Kovac appears. So retail workers at a store in Maryland kicking off their union election today in a high-stakes labor battle for the tech giant that could see the company's first union in the U.S. and... Steve Kovac joins us with the latest. Hey, Steve. Hey, John. It's like Beetlejuice, right? Uh, yeah, so Apple retail employees in Towson, Maryland, are beginning the first historic unionization vote today. Uh, so there are about 100 employees eligible to vote at this retail store, and the voting starts now, and it goes through Saturday. And they need just a simple majority to win. We're expecting these results to come in late Saturday night. And this will be the first Apple retail location to unionize if it's successful. And this comes as tech companies face unprecedented labor movements. Uh, we've seen efforts at Amazon, Activision, and even Google in the last couple years. Apple got ahead of these votes now. They raised pay last month to $22 an hour at the starting level. And they're offering more flexible hours to retail workers, especially in those evening shifts. And there's another store that's uh, trying to unionize. The Grand Central Terminal store in New York City is moving towards a vote. They're gathering signatures right now. In fact, Tim Cook visited employees at this store uh, just last week. He was there touring a bunch of stores in New York City, uh, and he stopped by these, uh, visited these employees. 
Um, Apple has said it offers a lot to employees and among they pay among the highest in retail. Plus, they offer Apple stock, parental leave and a whole bunch of other benefits that they kind of see as a way to engage with their employees and, you know, kind of combat the, these unionization efforts. But here's what I'm really watching. If Apple appeals the vote, if this union wins, that'll signal a big uh, and different attitude than what we've seen from Amazon, which is appealing the decision in the Staten Island warehouse and uh, and Starbucks as well, guys. Well, it's kind of uh, a difficult calculation for workers, right? Because by Apple showing up, Tim Cook coming to visit, they're kind of saying, hey, we're listening to you. Do you really want to give a percentage of your paycheck to the union to get them to do the listening for you when Tim Cook is right here. Is there the sense that perhaps Apple's approach is more productive than Amazon's? Maybe they'll be able to head this off by kind of killing them with kindness. Well, well, they certainly are trying, but I will say I spoke to one of the union organizers last week and the one at the Towson store, and they're like, look, we know we're just a small store. We're not a big flagship. And the fact that Deirdre O'Brien, who is their head of HR and retail, showed up, you know, they, the workers can kind of see through what's going on. Normally, they, they feel like they'd be ignored. But the fact that they're, the big boss is coming by uh, says they're, they're onto something. <laughs> That's good stuff, Steve. Uh, we'll watch that. Uh, Steve Kovac talking some Apple today. Uh, Bitcoin is down almost 30% in a week. Our next guest says calling the crash the worst parts of the banking crisis was with none of its consumer protections. We're going to talk it when we're back in three. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good Wednesday, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. Retail sales fell three-tenths of a percent last month, surprising economists who had expected a small increase. A shortage of motor vehicles scaled back car sales. Record gasoline prices pulled spending away from other items. Rising mortgage rates are putting a damper on loan demand. Mortgage applications rose this past week, but they still sit at less than half of what they were just a year ago. The average 30-year mortgage rate jumped above the 6% mark. And builder sentiment fell to a two-year low in the latest monthly reading from the National Association of Home Builders. Builders really are concerned here about the rapidly rising costs of construction materials. Netflix is planning a reality competition You are never going to believe this. Based on the popular Squid Game series, 
participants are going to play a series of games inspired by the show as well as some new additions. I know what you're thinking. If you've seen the show, you're like, wait a minute. They mostly ended in death. But in this case, apparently that won't happen. They will battle, though, for a more than $4.5 million prize. Netflix says it's the largest lump sum prize in reality TV show history. What a concept. Deirdre. This is still disturbing to me, Contessa, because it just means you're getting closer to that life or death You know what? Next up, the gladiators and lions and some coliseum. I mean, I say let them have it. There you go. Uh, Well... Speaking of, let's turn to crypto. Bitcoin down again today, extending losses to over 25% just in the last week. And crypto-related stocks, they're taking a hit too. Take a look at Marathon Digital, Silvergate Capital, and of course, MicroStrategy. All of those well off their highs for the year. But MicroStrategy CEO Michael Saylor, who has waged this strategy of buying large amounts of Bitcoin on his balance sheet, of course, he's still bullish. Take a listen. Bitcoin's backed by the most powerful secure computer network in the world. If I gave you $100 billion, you can't reproduce it. And it's beyond a nation state attack or corporate attack. So once you understand that and the fact that it's a singularity, there is nothing like it in the world, then, yeah, this is an ideal entry point to get into this thing. Joining us now to discuss crypto investor Catherine Wu of Archetype, which was formerly with she was formerly with Coinbase Ventures and Pinboard founder Maciej Siglowski, who has been an outspoken critic of crypto as well. Maciej, let's get to you first. I mean, what Saylor said is something that we've heard for years, but we're at a very different moment here, especially with rising interest rates. This could be a different crypto winter than what we've seen. My question, though, perhaps for investors that aren't in the space as well, um, does the sell-off, the high-profile blow-ups, um, are we going to see contagion, a spill over risk to the greater economy, or do you think that this will be contained ultimately within the world of crypto? Well, this is the question with every crypto crash, right? And there's an argument that this is just a cyclical thing that happens in the crypto world. But I would argue that what we're seeing now is kind of a it's almost a parody of the 2008 crisis, where cryptocurrency was born from the reaction to the 2008 crisis. And instead of creating this alternate world that they uh, they claim to have done, they just made kind of a, a, a 19th century, unregulated, unguarded version of the same things that brought down the banking system back in that year. So whether it's this time or next time, at some point, all of these uh, thousands of cryptocurrencies and speculative assets that are duct taped together, that are unregulated, that are run by you know, God knows who. At some point, this is going to be the big one. And it's just a question of whether this time is, is it? Right. Uh, Catherine, though, my question, though, is there spillover effect? Is there anywhere in the crypto space, whether that be a stable coin like Tether, um, that could crash that would have spillover effects on the greater economy? Well, so, you know, there's a couple of things to consider. So, you know, first is deals are slowing, prices are down, valuations for startup in the space is repricing, total uh, crypto market cap has fallen. Um, <clears throat> there's certainly a lot of stress on companies, so layoffs are happening. So I don't want to sugarcoat what's happening. But at the same time, I don't think this really marks the end of crypto from my perspective. And there's a couple of considerations, you know. Um, first, crypto has been around for over a decade. This is the third downturn in that period. So a market downturn in crypto is nothing new. We're actually 
actually just coming off of a bull market with a lot of talent inflows and infrastructure built. Um, venture activity is still pretty healthy. Companies are still getting funded and builder sentiment is still very high. Um, there, you know, this is probably one of the first uh, correlated, you know, macro downturns. And I think it's probably because um, the, the, the bull run was kind of caused by macro factors. But I don't know that, in my opinion, this spells the end for crypto at this time. Well, but does it have to be all or nothing, Catherine? I mean, crypto, and I'll just take Bitcoin specifically, has never really existed outside of a bull market. So I, I question how much it makes sense to look at other crypto winters within a bull market. Can you give me a good reason why Bitcoin won't go to 10,000 or even 5,000 over the next few months if it went from 60 to almost 20? I can't predict the prices and, and who knows, it could go up or down. And we all know that crypto assets is pretty volatile. But, you know, I think sitting here in 2022, you have more institutional interest. You have sovereign nation interest. Um, Bitcoin is... Um, you know, legal tender in, in more than one country. So um, I think there is probably enough interest to to at least, you know, make, I don't know. I mean, look, I can't predict prices, right? So, uh, but I think the point of but it going that, to zero price, at this point. The price point is, is, is pretty important, particularly to retail investors, many of whom were sold on this idea that the technology is so great and it's so scarce. I mean, that's what Sailor was saying this morning. Hey, look, it's a great computer network and therefore the prices are gonna hold up. I wonder why this is different. I brought this up yesterday from open source, where people said open source is going to rock the world of, of software. It's going to take out the Microsofts of the world. And open source did rock the world of software, but it didn't take out Microsoft. Microsoft adopted it. Might we get to the point where the financial system adopts blockchain technology, but these individual cryptocurrencies continue to come down in value and don't go back up? So there's a couple of differences. You know, Bitcoin, I think, is just one asset in the broader crypto ecosystem. And so Bitcoin, in my mind, is kind of, you know, digital gold or maybe alternative um, store of value. And so, you know, Bitcoin is one asset, but there's still so much happening in the crypto ecosystem that is also outside of Bitcoin. Um, so, for example, like Ethereum, I think, is strong. Um, the ecosystem is healthy. There are so many things and subcategories being built within Ethereum. So aside from just DeFi, there are NFTs or DAOs. And so there are so many subcategories. And, and I think a lot of the value and activity and developer activity and usage and applications are built on other types of protocols or other types of ecosystems. So there is Bitcoin, obviously, that's a big part of the crypto ecosystem, but there's also a lot of other things happening that are building on top of Ethereum. Uh, Matt, I want to get back to my first question. That is on spillover effects. I didn't hear you answer that. Do you think that there is any part of this market that could hurt the greater economy or the greater markets outside of crypto? I think we're finally at a stage where crypto is big enough that it uh, it can have spillover effects. Like I think the thing to watch is the stable coins. If one of those collapses, particularly Tether, which a lot of people, including myself, have argued is built just on a pyramid of fraud, uh, then that is going to be a big enough uh, a big enough crash to collapse certainly all of cryptocurrency, and it will have spillover effects outside of it. Uh, but this, you have to remember that the whole idea of spillover effects was supposed to be anathema to cryptocurrency. It was supposed to be completely decoupled from government policies. It was supposed to be, uh, you know, these centralized entities, these exchanges were supposed to have no impact at all on what was fundamentally a, a populist and decentralized, uncontrollable protocol. So this difference between yeah. what was promised and what was delivered is something that is a consistent theme in cryptocurrency failures. Right. 
That's a good point. Uh, Catherine, final question to you. I can understand why you want to get away from the price talk. Let's talk about the technology behind cryptocurrencies. Michael Saylor this morning said that Bitcoin is programmable. Can you give us an example of what innovation looks like that's currently being used or one of the most innovative companies that is not an exchange or a marketplace? Um, I mean, there are so many examples of companies that are built today that wasn't even possible three years ago. And I just really want to hammer like home the point that there is so much infrastructure being built. And just even in the short three years, there's just so many companies that are now possible, business models that are possible that genuinely were not possible before. So anything NFT related, you know, ERC 721 standards are so much more mature. Market sizes for NFTs are exponentially bigger. Um, protocols can use like, you know, Zora to create smart contracts instead of inching a new one. So developer tooling is so much more mature infrastructure is awesome now and so one of the really big trends at least in the crypto space that i'm seeing is nfts um, and that's like you know one of the rise of music nfts so really how do you empower musicians to kind of bypass the middleman which is you know recording labels to kind of sell directly to their fans i think for the creator economy which is obviously a really hot and rising topic i think that can really be a game changer so there's so many use cases depending on who you are i can talk about this for hours um, that's just something that's top of mind for me uh, Catherine and Maciej, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. One more name getting hit by the crypto sell-off, of course, is Robinhood. Atlantic today downgrades to sell this morning and forecasts an even bigger decline in usership ahead. Shares down 60% since January, as you well know, $7 a share now. Stay with us. Elon Musk saving no kind words for his EV competition this week, saying in an interview yesterday, quote, unless something changes significantly with Rivian and Lucid, they will both go bankrupt. They are tracking towards bankruptcy, adding if they don't dramatically cut costs, they're in deep trouble. Those stocks uh, did take a hit this year alongside Lordstown Motors, off more than 70 percent from the highs, John. Although uh, this new revolver of a billion dollars over at Lucid leaves them with more than five billion dollars in cash on hand at the end of Q1, uh, which uh, they say will fund operations well into next year. Yeah, um, I hear you. And you know what? The path is not unsimilar to what we've seen from Tesla, John. It's that they're doing it in a very different market environment. Yes, I'm profitable. And if we're going to have to continue to raise money, that's going to be a difficult thing to do in the current equity markets. But these numbers are just pretty astounding. Um, but so is their timing. Rivian raised a lot of money at just the right time, $15 billion. Yeah, maybe we're reading Elon wrong. Maybe this is a compliment. Maybe he's saying, hey, you guys are just like Tesla in 2018. Remember production hell? They have to change some significant <laughs> yeah. things in order to stay afloat. So uh, maybe he's saying good luck, guys. Um, anyway, coming up, are hybrid work meetings broken? With layoffs, hiring freezes, and more across the industry, we are talking the future of work with The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern. Don't go away. Elon Musk saving no kind words for his EV competition this week, saying in an interview yesterday, quote, unless something changes significantly with Rivian and Lucid, they will both 
go bankrupt. They are tracking towards bankruptcy, adding if they don't dramatically cut costs, they're in deep trouble. Those stocks uh, did take a hit this year alongside Lordstown Motors, off more than 70% from the highs, John. Although uh, this new revolver of a billion dollars over at Lucid leaves them with more than $5 billion in cash on hand at the end of Q1, uh, which uh, they say will fund operations well into next year. Yeah, um, I hear you. And you know what? The path is not unsimilar to what we've seen from Tesla, John. It's that they're doing it in a very different market environment. Yes, I'm profitable. And if we're going to have to continue to raise money, that's going to be a difficult thing to do in the current equity markets. But these numbers are just pretty astounding. Um, but so is their timing. Rivian raised a lot of money at just the right time, $15 billion. Yeah, maybe we're reading Elon wrong. Maybe this is a compliment. Maybe he's saying, hey, you guys are just like Tesla in 2018. Remember production hell? They had to change some significant <laughs> yeah. things in order to stay afloat. So uh, maybe he's saying good luck, guys. Um, anyway, coming up, are hybrid work meetings broken? With layoffs, hiring freezes, and more across the industry, we are talking the future of work with The Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern. Don't go away.
quick gut check on Snowflake. Canaccord upgrading to buy from hold, though the price target, oddly enough, remains unchanged at 185. With healthy demand, increased consumption, better monetization, they say all driving upside here. Quote, pullback gives us an opportunity to step up Snowflake shares. They are higher by more than 5.5% this morning. And there's more tech check after this. Don't go away. We're also hiring people in Boise who never went to an office in the Bay Area. So, so our talent strategy includes providing the flexibility to go to an office if you live near an office and to work remotely if that's what you want to do or if you don't live next to an office. And so that flexibility, you know, good pay with flexible um, sort of work practices, I think, is another big thing. And you know, we are definitely seeing employees from companies who are saying, you have to come back to the office. And they're, especially data scientists and computer scientists, they're like, I don't think so. That's Coursera CEO Jeff Maggiancalda on how the ed tech companies embracing remote work, hiring in Boise in the pandemic age. But there are wrinkles for the trend. Our next guest telling readers, meetings are broken. Tech is trying to fix them. Here to discuss, CNBC contributor and Wall Street Journal senior personal tech columnist, Joanna Stern. Joanna, is tech going to fix meetings? I I think it broke meetings, so it's got to now fix meetings. I think that's how tech works, right? Breaks things, then fixes. But I loved what Jeff from Coursera had just said, right? Workers are demanding this flexibility, and that is the trend. So now we have this issue where we have some people in the office sitting around a conference table and some people at home, and the meetings are a mess. You are looking at sort of, I described it as a poly pocket situation. You're at home, you're looking at a top-down view of a conference room, it, you don't know who to talk to. You don't know where to talk. And ultimately, nothing's really getting done at some of these meetings, especially for the people at home. So the Microsofts of the world, Google, Zoom, they're all stepping up with different types of tools. I talk about two different types of tools. There's a software solution, which is kind of a, a little bit odd. You bring your laptop to the meetings and Google and Microsoft are encouraging employees at their own campuses to start do, doing this. And then the other solution is more on the hardware side, right? It's about upgrading those conference rooms to better AV equipment, having the cameras upgraded. These cameras are now using AI to sort of zoom in on the people who's, who was talking. And so lots of technology being invested into this space. I, I, you're asking me if it'll be fixed. It. I think there's, there's a good chance it gets better. Okay, Joanna, this is great, except... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm kind of queasy about this approach of making the meeting worse for everybody by having them on laptops, even if they're physically present. Um, it, it, it seems like a lot of leaders are trying to figure out, are laptop meetings going to be the norm for meetings, or are they a tool for a little extra stuff? But let's be fair to the people who are remote. It just doesn't feel sustainable to me. No, the laptop meeting thing is sort of a mess. And so I talk about that in the column. But also Google and Microsoft have both rolled out tools to make that better, right? They have tools where you open up your laptop, you can turn on your webcam so the people at home can see you in the conference room on your laptop and you know more, more have that more personalized view. Or you can turn that off and you can just participate in the meetings with chats and that kind of thing. Now, this is not sort of new. Before pandemic, we were all in our meetings on our laptops, distracted and not really focused on the meetings. So that's my biggest concern about the laptops, to be honest. Joanna, um, it kind of feels to me like workers want hybrid work, but a lot of executives and CEOs don't actually want it to work. And you hear from some either publicly or privately say that they sort of lost the war, their employees aren't coming in despite their wishes. So do you think if they're not on board, 
to get this technology in place, maybe they'd be happier to sort of let the hell of the hybrid meeting exist because maybe it'll force workers to come in. Is it going to work? Well, I think that's the it, it remains to be seen. But if you have workers who are just in these meetings and nothing productive is happening, you're going to have frustrated people and they're not going to be enjoying their jobs and they're not going to be productive at work. So that's not good. On the other side, yeah, investment has to be made. I talked to the CEO of Logitech for this piece, Brack and Darrell, and he's saying we are seeing lots of companies. This is the biggest growth area right now for them in conference room equipment, right? Upgrading those cameras, upgrading the audio in the conference room. It's a $2 billion business for them. So the, 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 the top brass has to start to think about what am I going to invest in to at least make these meetings more productive? Or, by the way, hey, Joanna, just don't have meetings. Right, right. <laughs> just, yeah. Interesting. You know, maybe we don't have a few so different many things. A few different things are at work. One is um, B of A the other day wrote that home fatigue is beginning to set in. Their survey work shows more people are interested in coming into the office. I think New York City hit 40 percent office occupancy first time since the pandemic. And then there's this growing narrative, Joanna, that that it will become work from home or hybrid work will become a, the newest form of non-cash compensation, meaning it's it's a perk that HR offices will use to lure you rather than pay you in stock or in cash. I wonder if you think that makes sense. No, I hear on all of those things, and I heard a lot of that during the reporting of this story. I mean, the big question becomes on the perks, how far are companies willing to go? How far are managers willing to go, right? And to bring it back to the tech here, Will they have the tech tools to enable that that better situation? And ultimately, managers are responsible for the productivity of their team. If they don't have the tech tools to do that and they're not able to do that, and if the companies, the tech companies are not providing some of that, well, then, yeah, we we may end up all back in the office. But we heard from uh, the CEO of Coursera at the beginning of this segment that this is this is the future for the company for getting in the top talent. So really comes down to that. And I just will plug that I do not think the metaverse is the answer here. Um, we, we, I would, I would much rather take the train and commute than put on the big heavy headset right now and deal with flaky software. Well, Joanna Stern, thank you for joining us for this video meeting. It's been a good conversation. I, I would join you and let's join in person. Let's do that. Or metaverse. <laughs> uh, I'll see you in metaverse. We're, we're right here. <laughs> Trying to see you later. Uh, NASDAQ is up almost 2%. Dow session high was up 397. And we've obviously come off of that. We're back in a moment. Before we go, YouTube taking on TikTok, Alphabet reporting that more than 1.5 billion people watch YouTube shorts each month as of April versus the billion plus users TikTok announced last September. For those of you who have not watched a short yet, that's me included. The product launched globally less than a year ago and users can post videos under 60 seconds. Last month, Google announced that it would begin automatically including shorts in YouTube's advertising plans. And it does need that boost after ad revenue fell short of expectations last quarter. Guys, it's not really an apples to apples comparison. A lot of people are signed up to YouTube that may get these coming across their feed. However, um, it does speak to Alphabet and the proposition as we go into another Fed meeting. Um, what some of our guests say is that diversification that can better protect it against a recession and rising interest rates, John. Well, Dee, I've been thinking more about this ever since your interview with Sundar Pichai a few weeks ago, where he said, well, we kind of started off with shorts, but we've gotten bigger than that. YouTube is sort of in a class of its own, Carl, when it comes to engagement on lengthy content. And I don't think we've yet seen mm -hmm. whether TikTok can match that. 
Good point. That would be interesting. Uh, yeah, the way in which autoplay uh, helps you move along to the next video, D. Uh, we'll see how that plays when, on some of this longer form work. Absolutely. Uh, meanwhile, Carl, the Nasdaq continues to outperform. It's up one and three quarters of a percent as we head into that important afternoon. Uh, yep, I got the surprise build in uh, oil inventories today, guys. That means that oil, West Texas, is back to 117 or so. We're going to watch that. Overall, though, fairly steady story all day long. You got the VIX right around 30 today. Ten years been pretty steady at around uh, 3, 4. And even though the thinking is 75 basis points this afternoon, there are 3% odds of a 100 basis point move uh, later on today. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.